1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're turning this morning. 1 Timothy 3, we're looking at our last session on what is a man? What is it to be, what is it to be a biblical man? Now, if you're not a man or uh, a boy that uh, is seeking to be a man, you can still listen in because these are the marks of maturity we want to see in our masculine type folks. We want to see uh, this, these character traits in all of our people, and especially in our boys, training them toward these characteristics that come from God's Word, our standard from God's Word, and to see them, how they're so different from what the world celebrates, and any number of really conflicting pictures of what, what a real man is or is not. The world has all kinds of uh, things that they demand or, or require or expect but what does God expect? And what does he expect, not just of men in the congregation, but of the leading men in the congregation? If you know 1 Timothy 3, you know, hey, wait, what? He's, this is the talking, this is where it talks about the qualifications for bishops or overseers in the text here, which are also called pastors and elders. And that is true. These are qualifications for those who would serve in the leading positions, if you don't mind, servant leading positions in the congregation. But isn't it so that if that is what the leading men ought to be, isn't, shouldn't every man be like this as well? And again, as I've said before, what every man, and if you don't mind also, every Christian to some degree ought to be these things, elders, pastors, overseers must be, must fulfill these qualifications. And so First Timothy chapter 3, we'll look at the first seven verses, even though also it is discussing deacons and deacons' wives, I believe, in the rest of the chapter, and even the statement at the last several verses there in chapter 3. We're going to focus on the first seven verses as it refers to masculinity, manhood, in the congregation, in our society. Because truly, if, if these characteristics are present in our men, then we will see the proper care and even nurture or advancement of not just our homes, but also the church and society at large. Don't we see some issues in our society? Yes. How about we back up? Don't we see those same issues to some degree in our churches? Yes. How about we back up a little bit farther? Don't we see some of those issues in the homes? Because that all flows together. So we come back and say, what is that man to be in his different spheres of responsibility? So first Peter, excuse me, first Timothy chapter three and verse one says, it is a trustworthy saying. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil." And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This opening saying here at the beginning of verse 1 is a repeated saying. It's kind of a flagship uh, marker in Paul's letters to the what are called the pastoral epistles. And we could talk about that name another time perhaps. But he repeats this phrase, it is a trustworthy saying, five different times in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And he says, this is, this is good stuff. This is important. This is needful for the congregation to know these things. And uh, here is one saying, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. Now, again, this is, this is talking about any person who's aspiring to this overseer. We're going to see the office of overseer. We're going to see in just a moment, next verse, in fact, 
this is to be a one-woman man, a husband of one wife. So it really restricts, even though it says here in verse 1, if any man aspires, it, it, it's, any, it's uncertain. It's any, any person wants to have this office of overseer. But then the next verse he says, men only. And he talks about that earlier in chapter 2, about uh, don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain silent in the church and so forth. So here he's saying, if any man aspires to the work, wants it, desires it, has a an aspiration, a orienting of the whole soul to serve the church in this capacity, then uh, it's a good thing. He desires a good work, which, by the way, it's not just a good work to be a pastor, elder, overseer. It's a good work that each Christian ought to be involved with. In fact, so much emphasis in Titus, the letter that Paul wrote to Titus, emphasizes the good works that Christians are to be given to, and especially to be zealous for good works, or to, um, Titus 3 and verse 8 says, those who believe God will be intent to lead in good works. And so we want, all Christians are responsible for it. You're not extra spiritual or extra special in God's eyes if you're a pastor, elder, overseer. We're all supposed to be engaged in good works, serving God, not because our salvation depends on it, although it is proven by it, right? Our salvation is proven by our works. Doesn't James teach that? And doesn't our Lord Jesus, back in Matthew chapter 5, says, let, let your light shine among men so they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. James, or excuse me, Matthew 5, uh, verse 10 or 11, somewhere Verse 16, thank you. And so right right there. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. Now that's about as much as I'm going to say about the office of overseer. About a year ago, we studied all about church leadership, if you don't mind church servanthood, and we'll see how Paul approaches it. It's not a position of, of uh, honor or of prestige or a position of, you know, you may kiss the ring kind of thing. It's not anything like that. It's not only a board position, like an administrative position, these elders, pastors, overseers. No, this is a place of responsibility. It is a place of stewardship. Titus 1 talks about that. The steward of God must be this, that, and the other thing. Uh, we will give an account, Hebrews 13, 17. We will give an account for those that we are responsible for before the Lord. So it's a position of great weight and wow. I mean, it takes your breath away, but it's a good thing. You aspire to it, you desire good work. Well, what is this guy, what are these guys supposed to be like? Verse 2 says, an overseer, pastor, elder, uh, must be. And if you don't mind, I'm broaden it. Don't we want to raise up from our own congregation men who would serve in these capacities, whether in this congregation or other congregations? Wouldn't it be delightful that we can send out men to plant churches or to go and serve in foreign lands and to be founded in the scriptures and to be have this character that is beautiful, that is required even of God for those who shepherd his church? He opens up and says, an overseer then must be, wait a minute, must be, can't, aren't these the, the suggestions, you know, the suggested qualifications? The, you know, we would like to have a, qualifi- a qualified candidate that meets these, these uh, suggested ideas. No, an overseer must be these things. It's a necessity. You, you've, gotta be, you've got to have men. You've got to be careful uh, to, in the church, definitely. But let me just tell, tell you something also. For women who are seeking or waiting for that Mr. Right to come, Make sure that he meets these qualifications. And you think, oh, it's so, so high. And Well, don't you want a kind of a high bar for the guy that you would love and serve and, and, uh, and, and want to please for the rest of your life? Don't you want to make sure he's like this? Be very careful. Don't you want to make sure your kids, your boys are raising, you know, growing up to be this kind of thing? Well, he says an elder, pastor, overseer, a man, if you don't mind, must be above reproach, must be one who is 
one who does not have any kind of shame or questionable aspect of his life, one who has the ability to withstand any kind of accusation or criticism, even if you don't mind to receive all kind of criticism about things, willing to, to, and not just criticism, just counsel, just trying to, hey, you know, uh, your, your tie's on crooked. Well, how, how dare you come and approach me about this? Well, I'm just trying to help you. Your tie's on crooked. Thank you for helping me with that. Uh, we want to make sure that this guy is above reproach, blameless. He is, uh, as a pattern of life, I mean, everybody is a mess. We need a Savior every day. Everybody needs a Savior every day. But what is the trajectory of his life? Is it, I mean, if you zoom in on a little bit, you see these ups and downs, but you see the general trajectory of his life is holiness, righteousness, blameless, blamelessness before God. Can you find somebody who, uh, you know, people just can't come up to him and say, I got you, I caught you doing this on your computer, or I got you doing this with your money, or, or with your time, or the way that you're dealing with your wife or your kids. You just can't find that in this person. It's not that he's perfect, but he is uh, beyond any kind of reproach or questionability. Uh, he is somebody who is uh, a man of integrity, in another word. And it's a different word in Titus 1, the same idea, to be above reproach, to be beyond accusation, and so forth. Uh, it says further that the, he, this person, must be the husband of one wife. Now, you notice something about that. That literally it says, and if you don't mind, you've heard this before, a one-woman man. And you think, well, what does that mean? I don't want to get into all of the details of it. We've talked about this before. There are many different aspects of it, but focus one thing. I'll just look at the three words in Greek, a little bit different in English. But it says, first of all, it's a one-person one person, which kind of ex- exclusivizes the relationship. In other words, it is a, it's talking about marriage as the goal And yet it says this is a monogamous, a covenantal companionship between, by the way, a man and a woman, right? Husband of one wife, a one-woman man. That's the relationship. It's not a one-man-man or one-woman-woman or two-woman-man with what? No, it is a covenantal relationship between one man, one woman, where it is a promise before God to love and enjoy one another and to share life together and to grow and to encourage one another in the Lord. And it's a, a wonderful situation of life. It is a exclusive relationship. It's not an open relationship where you just, you know, I'm with this guy for this week and next week I'm going up to this guy. No, nothing like this or different perspective. Going to this woman this week and, and no, it's nothing like that. You're focused on your woman, your wife. And you'll also see in this passage, it's a one-woman man. This is leadership is male. The care that Paul has to establish elders, pastors, overseers in the church is getting the right men into these positions of authority and responsibility and service to the congregation. Again, many things can be said about this phrase in terms of marriage status. Does the, does the elder particularly have to be married or should all men pursue marriage? Well, normally, and I'm just saying normally, statistically speaking, most people do get married across the centuries. And it's not just a human device. It's not just something that we thought up as a good thing. No, it's God's design from the beginning. And we can, we have looked at that before. Um, marriage could, or this, this phrase, does it require marriage? Well, it, it, it expects or anticipates that. And if there is marriage, this is how the man ought to be, ought to be in this regard. Does it mean he can't be divorced? He can't have multiple wives or can only be married one time or, you know, no remarriage kind of thing. That's really, I think it's beside the point. I think the main import of what he is saying is really summarized or in a different 
approach in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Just write down the passage. You can look at it another time if you want. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3, where he says uh, about the devotion that Christians ought to have to Christ as an exclusive relationship, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3. But this is the idea of faithfulness, covenant faithfulness in that marriage. It is a positive statement. You think, really, I don't have to be the husband of one wife. Can I be a husband? You don't want more than one wife. It's a problem. You want to see how that works out in Scripture? No, don't do that. Don't do that. Love your wife. Love the woman that God has given to you, which kind of anticipates or requires we need to prepare our boys and our young men to marry, to love and serve a single woman, you know, one, not a single woman, a married woman, in, uh, but one woman, right? It, for the rest of his life to orient his life around the Lord, of course, but around that woman and see her and see her needs and, and to serve her all the time. Well, much more could be said about that. A man, if you don't mind, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and then he gets into some other things, kind of rapid-fire statements. This person, this man, should be temperate. Temperate has to do with his conduct. He is one who is sober, and not so much in relation to drink. He's going to mention that here in just a moment. But one who is kind of balanced, not given to extremes over this way, extremes over that way. He is a careful um, even if you don't mind, methodical kind of person, one who is not self-indulgent in all kinds, you know, is this little habit or this hobby over here that really takes up more time than his, his uh, career or his, his uh, money-making opportunity. He spends a lot of time over here. Mm, that's not really a temperate kind of person. One who is uh, restrained even in his, his appetites. Well, actually, next verse, next, Word talks about uh, appetites, the emotions and passions and so forth, but one who is able to be free from every form of mental or spiritual drunkenness or excess, that he's just, he's, he's careful about things. He's, he's reliable. He's, he's, um, even keeled. There's a, there's a good word. Next verse, next word rather, sensible. Oh, wouldn't we like sensibility? In fact, the only thing that Paul says, yeah, Paul says in Titus chapter two to the young men, urge the young men to be sensible, as if that's the the, the minimum thing, and it's not right. He he says that he says other things. In fact, we'll look at when we when we turn our focus to women, biblical womanhood. We'll look at Titus chapter two specifically, and he has a lot of different things for older women this way and younger women this way, and urge the young men to be sensible. Is that all you're going to say to them? They need a lot more than just a word. Well, he's already told them. What should the men be like? And he gave the qualifications for an elder. We want to train our men to be qualified, Lord willing, God helping them to be qualified elders to serve the church in these different ways. Whether it's an official capacity, you know, recognized capacity or not, but to be, have that qualification. Uh, and that's, that's how Paul approaches it there. So be sensible. This is relation to, as I mentioned, emotions, passions, the appetites that we have. This person, this man is self-controlled. He is able to rein in his uh, desires, his passions, like James 3 says, or James 4 rather, the passions that wage war in our members. He's able to subdue these things. Uh, one commentator says he has his wits about him. I mean, he's not just run by his emotions. He's not just run by what feels good. I'm not hungry or I'm famished like Esau. Give me some of that red stuff. No, nothing like that. He is a reasonable fellow and he's not frivolous or given to fads. You know, what's the latest fad? I need to tune into the, I don't even know what the faddish um, 
media, whatever is, you know, to find out what is, what's popular or not. I have no idea. But given to these things, it's superficiality is, is not part of his approach to life. He has his emotions, his impulse, his desires under control. Uh, a, a picture of this is when Jesus healed the man who had, uh, I mean, was demon possessed. He was living out in the, in the tombs and cutting himself and all this, this, this stuff. And it says the man, this is Mark chapter five, verse 15. He is now in his right mind. He now has control. He was just out of control. Just whatever he wanted to do, he did. But now he is under control. The next word says he is respectable. This word has to do with cosmetics. Now, I'm not suggesting that our men might need to start getting eyeshadow or stuff, but it has to do with being in order, being um, in a presentable, uh, organized kind of fashion. It's used, Paul says it, Actually, in the previous chapter, 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, I want women to adorn, and this is our word, to be respectable, uh, to adorn themselves with proper clothing, with modesty, self-restraint. And then he says the same thing. Um, well, he just continues in that in that verse, talking about how they ought to adorn themselves. It doesn't just have to do with the decoration. It has to do with a sense of being together, being respectable even, decent, one who is organized, one who is dressing appropriately or even admirably. Uh, this person, again, not just in a presentation phase, but in his life, he is not sloppy. He's not chaotic. If you don't mind, I'm going to mess with y'all. You make your bed in the morning. You pick up your dirty laundry off the floor and you put it in its proper receptacle. Man, that's just being orderly, being responsible, taking care of your things. Have you changed your oil lately? in your car, right? I mean, do you, do you know what's going on? Do you have a sense of, of, uh, of uh, just taking care of what you have in your life, what you're responsible for? Can you have this kind of moderation, uh, modesty? Uh, we want this in our men's lives, respectability. Next, he talks about hospitality. And you think, I don't like having people in my house. Well, that's not just what it means. We, we tend to think hospitality, bringing people in, doesn't mean. It means more internally having an open heart and not just you know ripping your heart but being willing to serve having a, a generous spirit being aware of people's needs and whether you can meet that need or not at least you, perhaps you can direct them hey you want to talk to this person over here but to have a perspective a, a love for people and you think i don't really like people well can you love as i mean liking is one thing but loving them that's an entirely different thing and by the way you are supernaturally enabled to love people, right? Fruit of the Spirit is getting along with people and just liking. No, it's loving people, serving them, thinking of other people is more important than yourself. This person is not a loner. You know, me and Jesus, that's, that's enough. I can't handle any other relationships. I, I don't, no, that's not a hospitable person. He has an open heart uh, to serve others with fellowship and enjoyment, has an open hand to provide for their needs, has even, as they're, as they're able, had an open home to share food and lodging and protection. We see this throughout the scripture. We even saw it with Job, right? Job, who was so careful to show hospitality toward uh, travelers, those who were coming through his area, come on in. I'll feed you. I'll take care of you. Give you lodging as long as you needs. Come and stay in my house, said Job. And he was just aware of those kind of needs. And he was also aware, going further than the, just the hosting people in the home, he wanted to make sure that their justice was met. You've been wrong. Let me help you get that. Let me help you set these things right so that you can be advanced in your life. Lastly, it says in the verse 2, able to teach. This word does not appear often in scripture, and it really emphasizes the fact that, boy, does this person, does this man have an ability to uh, a, a skill to teach, uh, 
a desire to even bring people to God's word, whether it's, it's teaching, you know, didactically or counseling, what kind of attention does this man have to the word? Write in your notes if you want. Titus 1 and verse 9 helps us fill out. What is this idea? Holding fast the faithful word so that he may be both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's what it means. Able to teach. And able to teach with some benefit to the hearers because lots of people might stand up and, and want to teach, but mm, um, thank you. Next. Can we have the next person up to... Uh, and And that's part of backing out of this masculine thing. Backing out a little bit to those who are qualified to serve as pastors, elders, overseers. What kind of fruit do they have? What kind of reception do they have in the congregation? Does already the congregation look to them for counsel, for, uh, you know, as, as a respected man in the congregation, one who they can go to and, and find scripture and hear scripture from them? Apt to teach. Now, later he's going to talk about, in First Timothy 5, he's going to talk about those who work hard at teaching and the word. And so there's, there's even in the, in the eldership or pastorship, there is a differentiation of, of, uh, attention or uh, work that, okay, some are, I mean, everybody's responsible, shepherding, but some give themselves more fully to the work of teaching. But everybody's supposed to be a teacher. We all teach one way or another. We all have value statements. We all say, hey, you need to pay attention to this or go to this store or go to this restaurant, watch this movie, read this book. We're all encouraging people, but how much more so do we need to encourage from the scripture? Verse 3 goes on, gives wonderful things as well. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious not addicted to wine. Uh, and literally it says, not one who is, is standing beside wine, always has a, some kind of cup of, of alcohol in his hand. One who has just constantly got something going. And truly in that age, in the first century, it took a long time for somebody to get drunk because the, the wine, the alcohol was not as, if you don't mind, high what is it called? High alcoholic proof? Is that what it's called? Uh, it was a very diluted thing. In fact, that's how they would purify water was through some of the alcoholic thing to kill off the bugs and whatever going on there. So somebody would have to spend a long time with this substance to get drunk. And he says, no, this is not somebody. A man is not one who sits beside wine. This is not one who is given to the excesses that goes along with alcohol and the incapacitating effects of it. I mean, alcohol, you know, is a, is a how does the proverb go? Wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler, and he who is intoxicated with it is not wise. It's not a wise thing. And, yeah, so many pictures of that in, in movies and TV shows and whatever, and it makes it kind of fun. No, it's deathly. It's going to kill you. It's going to kill other people because of your, your excesses that are given to this. Uh, John MacArthur gave a very helpful explanation of, oh, does that mean that Christians today ought to be, you know, nothing to do with alcohol? Read read or listen to his sermon on Ephesians 5, verse 18, because he has eight, eight questions about alcohol. And it's online. You can just search Ephesians 5, 18, which says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So this man should not be addicted to wine or pugnacious. Pugnacious is uh, coming, comes from the Latin, if you don't mind, and it has to do with a fist. In fact, anybody, I don't know if you all have a pug, a little pug dog. Uh, there's some, some uh, contested statement about what does that name come from? Because the word in Latin, pugnus, is fist. And if you, if you look at that, you see a pug dog right there. And I mean, it's just that their face is pushed in and kind of all smushed together. And that's the idea. Pugnacious is one who has a fist and wants to use it. He's violent. But wait a minute. No. This man, a man of God, is not violent, not a brawler, not a striker, not one who uh, outwardly or externally 
demonstrates wrath or anger or just a combative kind of person, just somebody who is belligerent. There's another word, Latin, with, you know, bellus, uh, means war and, and stuff, bellicose as well. So not one who will use his fist to solve a problem. Not that way. Instead, this person is considerate. Considerate. This is how we want to be. This is a quality of all saints, Philippians 4 and verse 5 and other places. This is one who, uh, his, his first resort, resort is not, I'm going to solve this with violence. No. Kindness. Courteousness toward one another. Uh, showing every consideration for all men. That we ought to be patient. That we should be gracious and forbearing with one another. In other words, this guy's not severe. He doesn't come down, you know, laying down the law. I'm going to come in and set things right. No, not heavy-handed at all. Just a sweet reasonableness about him. This is what we want to see, especially when it comes down to dealing with conflict and issues between people. I mean, there's there's a way to solve problems, but let's let's be gentle about. It. Let's be considerate about these things. And next verse, next word rather, to be peaceable. One who is not contentious, one who is not comes into thing and starts quarreling and bickering and just argues an outburst of anger. And all we have going on here is is a lot of heat, but not 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 a lot of light going on here. A lot of friction, a lot of uh, uh, animosity. No, this person he'll come in and he will be peaceable. He will deal with things. He's going to deal with the strife, the conflict that's going on. Not ignore it, but deal with it and bring a reconciliation going on here. Proverbs 15, verse 1, for example, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. What kind of man is this? How does he deal with upsets or disappointments in his life? How does he help other people deal with these things? Does he plot revenge? Does he plot a way to to steal and kill and destroy? No, that's not the kind of person, a peaceable person. Last phrase here in verse 3, free from the love of money. Free from the, it doesn't say free from money, because that's kind of a, I mean, get a job. I mean, as one person said, there's a solution to poverty, and it's called get, get a job, go to work. And so it's not free from money, but free from the love of money, because there's a way that we can so orient our lives around getting more and more and more, never being satisfied, never being content with what God has given to us. The person has a, this man has a healthy view of money, both the obtaining of it and the distribution of it. One who, it's not something that he gets and gets and gets for himself. He's going to spend on his desires. He's got the best man cave in the world. I mean, all this, forget about that. How does he use his money to advance kingdom purposes? How does he use it to bless other people? How does he use it to care for his, his family? How does he uh, demonstrate his love of God? Because Jesus said, you cannot serve God and wealth. If you orient your life around wealth, it's going to take you away from God. God gives wealth. He also takes it away. But you can you have this idea, like Hebrews 13 says, being content with what you have. Make sure that your way of life is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself, is God your sufficiency? He says, I will never desert you, nor will ever forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I'll not be afraid. What can man do to me? God is my source, not just a resource like you have a checking account or uh, your retirement account. Forget about all that. God is the source. He is the provider. He gives this over that way, and he takes it, and he, he does these things. To be free from that love of money. Literally, the word says uh, free from the love of silver, and we named our truck that. It's kind of more of a rusty gray color, rusty color now, but when we first got it, it was kind of a nice car, and we named it Afalagros. Nice Greek word, which means free from the love of money. 
fruit from the love of silver specifically. Verse 4 says, Leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity, but if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? This word leading is the one who stands before, who stands in front of, the one who leads, uh, you know, leading along a path, one who is setting a direction and says, okay, everybody follow me, let's do this. He's leading his own household well. He is attentive, not so much a homebody, but he is oriented not so much about his career or, or life out there. He's oriented, how can my family be blessed as I work and do these different things? How can I take care of my household? How can I lead to provide direction for them, understanding how can I be attentive to their needs? And that can be so far as, uh, here's a baby, there's a diaper-changing thing, thank you. Uh, can you do that? Can you change a diaper? Can you empty the dishwasher? And not just empty it. Can you? Fi- there, there's a there's a twofold process. You put the dishwasher dish, dishes in the dirty dishes, right? And then you turn it on and you empty it. Can you, as a man, use your strength, your strength under control, to put the silverware right in there? And if your wife wants it upside right or or down, I don't know what your protocol is. Whatever it is, make sure that you understand. Take care of your household. Having children in submission. Does this man have? Not just a tolerance like, yeah, kids are fine, but a love, a delight, having. These are his kids. Does he have that view? Does he have, these aren't my wife's kids. These aren't all these, these uh, blessings, right? Oh, blessings from God. No, does he really have this view? These are blessings. These are my, my responsibility, my, under my care. Does he have that mentality and the, the love, the attention that he has? Having children in submission with all dignity. Now, there's a, one way and you've seen this, where the submission is a very much forced, coerced, fearful kind of submission, where the kids are more afraid of what the father's going to do than, than a submission out of love and trust and devotion to this man. Can you see that in this man's life? Having children in submission with all dignity, with all kind of um, beauty or, or that which is befitting, that which is just a glorious thing, uh, a respectfulness, uh, even a... Uh, well, a dignity, a reverence going on in their lives. And notice how he says it, in, because this is the context of church leaders. If a man does not know how to lead, same word lead as we saw earlier in the verse, or in verse 4, if a man does not know how to lead his own household, but then he changes the verb. How will he take care of the church of God? In other words, he, he, he changes the idea from leading to taking care of. Because, again, the, the danger, and he's going to focus on this in just a moment, the danger of men in a household position or just, you know, just husband-wife or in a, a, a father-child kind of relationship is, is the danger in that is to become an authoritarian, hard-nosed, hard, heavy-handed, you know, my way or the highway kind of thing. It shouldn't be that way in the home. It should not be that way in the church. You want men who will take care of the church of God. How do you take care of? I mean, it's not so much leading. Yes, there is leading, but, but he, he, he puts it in this, this more tender kind of a statement. Taking care of, nourishing, nurturing of this, this uh, congregation. This word of, of, uh, taking care of is, uh, defined like to take care of with diligent concern. It's not just, a, oh, you've got a fever. Well, I hope you get better. Kind of thing. No. Tending. Let me get you a little washcloth. Let me get you uh, water. Can I get you some water? How can I serve you? You'll notice 
that when Jesus was asked about, well, who is my neighbor, right? And what's the greatest commandment? Love God, love others. Well, who's, who, love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor seeking to justify himself? And Jesus told this wonderful story, a parable of the Good Samaritan. And part of that thing is that the Samaritan, I mean, everything the Samaritan did, attentive, courteous, kind, uh, compassionate, meeting that guys need, all these things. But then he uses this same word, take care of uh, the church of God. He uses that same word twice in that text, Luke uh, 10. He, and he says of the innkeeper, hey, I got I need to go. I got to do this, my business over here. But I want you to take care of this man. Whatever you spend, I'm going to give you some money, whatever more you spend when I return, because he had an ongoing concern for this guy. Never knew him, stranger entirely, and yet he's going to come back to check on him and even make sure that he is taken care of. So very much important uh, here in verses 4 and 5. Verses, verse 6 says, not a new convert, not somebody, and this is the only place where this word is used. Uh, it really has the idea of, of a, a little seedling or something that's newly planted in the ground. Not somebody like that. Don't you want, mm, maybe kind of like Psalm 1, uh, like a tree planted by the streams of water, maybe something like that. That's the kind of men we want, man we want and want to be. Not somebody who's newly planted, not, and it's not a shame to be newly planted, but it's not somebody that you really want to entrust your life to or trust the care of the church to or, or marry. You want somebody who is mature. You want somebody who's grown up, not still acting like the boy that he used to be 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. No, he has matured. He has grown up and he has put away childish things, right? First Corinthians 13, put away those things. I used to do that stuff, uh, speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. I became a man and I put away did away with those childish things. We want to grow. We want to have mature characteristics. In fact, that's the statement in Ephesians 4.13, that we want to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, or if you don't mind, mature adulthood, to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, the fullness of Christ is the measure of stature. How do you know if you're mature? Where's Christ in you? Can I see Christ in you? Because that's what maturity looks like. That is, I mean, it's, it's, you gotta start somewhere, right? But let's grow. Let us mature in these things. Notice the danger here in verse six. So that he will not become conceited, proud of his, what are you proud of again? You've got nothing. <laughs> You've started well, but that's about it. You've started. Let's see how that percolates. Let's see how that develops. This person has become conceited, full of himself, and he has thereby incurred or fallen into the condemnation, not that the devil gives, but the same condemnation that the devil receives. Because he was proud. He was full of himself and became conceited. He wanted prestige. He wanted honor. He wanted to be respected. He wanted to be the person listened to. He wanted to have all, you know, my people need me. They, you know, they're my sheep. They're my followers. I, they, my, well, followers, both in, in the church setting or in a, in a social media, right? Got your followers and whatever. No, is this person mature? Is this somebody that is worthy of emulation? Is this a person who says, well, I've got all the answers, just ask me the questions I can tell you. No, is there a measure of humility in that? There's boldness, there's truth, but also this measure of humility. And fall into the condemnation, the judgment of the devil, which he has received already and which he will receive even more so in the future. Finally, verse 7 says, having a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. 
This is his reputation outside the church. Uh, you know, those outside the church. This is how is he known? What's he known for? People mention the guy's name, and people say, "Oh, yeah, I know that guy. He's crooked as the day is long." Or, well, that's not. You don't want to have that reputation. Uh, you want to have uh, as much as it depends upon you. What is true and righteous that people think of you, and they they smile, not with a smile of, yeah, I know about that guy. No, it's a smile of, yeah, wow, that guy is quality. He's he's all 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 these good things that we've been talking about. He has a good reputation, one who is trusted, one who has not just claims to be all these things, but observably by other people. You know, let another man praise you, kind of thing. Does he have a a uh, a testimony, that's the word here really, a testimony with other people that say, yeah, that's that's a quality fellow. Because the danger here is so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil, that we have the ridicule, oh, that person talked a good talk, but now we know all the real truth about him. He is a scoundrel. He is a rascal. And he is he is godless, impious. He is one who is, you know, he, he says he was a, a family man, but we know that's not the case because he's got all these different women on the side. Nothing like that. We don't want anything of these kind of reproaches going on here because, again, to be above reproach is the first qualification that we saw here. This is the snare of the devil. In other words, a snare is something that's hidden that is deadly. You don't just trap things because you want to put them in your in your aquarium or something. You want to eat them. And that's what Satan wants to do. He, he sets all kind of snares, traps around here to destroy people. What does is, what is, uh, Satan come to do? He's come to steal and kill and destroy. Well, I think he's a much nicer Satan these days. He doesn't want to destroy as many people. Yes, he does. And you, he wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to take your children from you. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to just everything. Be careful about how you have a reputation. And this has to do with not just what people see on the outside, it's very important, but to say that that, what, the, what people see is the same thing going on in my life. And, and in other words, the, the presentation is this way and you see what's in front. But if we turn this way, you see, oh, oh, there's something different. Ah, now we know the real person. No, that is consistent. What people see is the same thing they can see this way and have that integrity. Because again, Satan wants to destroy. And uh, he says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 26, that we minister the word of God so that certain people may regain their senses from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Be very careful in our uh, living out of God's life in our lives, that we would honor him, that we would testify truly to what God has called us to be as men, what our boys are being called to, what our church leaders are being called to and expected of, so that, I mean, this is, the lives are at stake here. Your life, the life of your people, uh, and the testimony of Christ in this congregation, and this generation, rather, and these are important ideas. Make sure, again, for our young ladies out there, make sure that you, you find a guy like this. I mean, oh, he's nice, he's handsome, and he's a Christian, he goes to church. When does he go to church? Well, he goes to church with his grandma on Christmas Eve. No. Does he love the Lord his God? Does he have these, these characteristics of being a brave approach? One wife, one woman, one woman and man. Does he have these ideas of temperate and courteous? All these things. Get your bar a little bit higher than just, well, he's cute and he pays me attention and he buys me coffee. No. Be very discerning about these things. And men, you be careful about how you are growing in the Lord and honoring him and bearing fruit. You want to represent Christ in this crazy mixed-up generation. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that your truth is powerful. It is life-changing, and it is 
wow, kind of daunting. This is, this is a lot of stuff and kind of heavy for us. And yet we trust you. We're grateful that your persevering grace is upon our lives. What man is sufficient for these things? We're not. We're, we're so inadequate. We know that. We feel that. And yet you are a gracious God. You are a transforming, redeeming God. We pray that you would help us all, men particularly, but all people here, to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. He is perfection. He is absolute beauty in his masculinity, in his care and compassion, his kindness for so many different ways, his boldness, his leadership, his integrity, his devotion, dependence upon you, all these things and so much more we see in Christ. We pray that others would see Christ in us. We pray in his name. Amen.